0: Please stand as you are able for reading today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me, the deep surrounded me, even weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Mark
1: Edwards, thank you for reading our lesson this morning and grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. And to those of you online, we are so glad. We probably got uh, three times as many folks online today as we do in person, Uh, but you were here. We had no idea what to expect, although we had a pretty good idea Uh, that the Frozen Chosen would show up. And you have shown up today. I got to tell you, it's so wonderful to see people from 8.30 and 9.45 and 11 a.m., people of all ages. And of course, uh, this choir, this multi-generational choir that Ryan and James have pulled together uh, on Thursday and Friday, Uh, we were not able to get our bulletins done by the company that usually does our bulletin, and the caterer for tonight uh, for our marriage course was unable to deliver the food, and I know how badly you all need the marriage course after this week. But stay tuned. We will reschedule that for next week. Oh, we're so glad you're here. We have some very, very dear friends here. I don't know that I have a better friend in the world than Jim and Charmaine King, who are with us uh, down here on the second row. You all must have come in late. All the back seats were gone, so you had to sit up front. Uh, Jim and Charmaine, it's so good to see you. They're from Waverly, Humphreys County, and some of the some of the finest friends that that I know, and their parents as well, uh, from days past so thankful that you're here this morning. You all know the old story. One of my favorite stories about Jonah is the little boy who was third grader. He was coming out of Sunday school, walking home, and he had his circular uh, from Sunday school with a picture of Jonah and the whale on it. They had studied Jonah and the whale. And there was a curmudgeon, an older guy who was walking his dog, who saw that picture. And he looked at the little boy and said, son, you don't mean that you believe in that Old Testament nonsense, do you, of a whale swallowing Jonah? And he said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the fellow said, well, what if Jonah is not in heaven? The little boy said, well, then you ask him. (laughs) (laughs) It's a whale of a tail. And today we've read the second Reading the second lesson, Jonah chapter 2. Let me just review with you for a moment if you missed last week the first sermon. He's one of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, so called minor, not because Jonah's inferior to other prophets, but because he's succinct, he's very concise, he's brief. In fact, his work is contained in four chapters. 48 verses, it will take you eight minutes to read the whole book. And it will take me four weeks to preach this book. I guess there's a shift in theology that's happening in the book of Jonah that's important to note. All of a sudden, it seems like, at least in Israelite theology, that they're moving from a more tribalistic perspective to a universal outlook. In other words, the book of Jonah as a whole reveals that God is not only concerned about Israel, but God is concerned about all nations. God is not just concerned about Hebrew people, select people. God is concerned about all people. One of my friends who happens to be a Jewish rabbi says it like this. To be chosen doesn't mean you're a person of privilege. It means you're a person of responsibility. That's what it means. I've discovered that sometimes the most important Christian education, the most important spiritual formation for us is not just about learning, sometimes it's about unlearning some things that we've learned that may not be so. Mark Twain said it best when he said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Or as Coach Wooden, the great ball coach said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Maybe it's just me, but I think in the 21st century, we seem to be suffering from, from an ailment or a condition that I call cognitive bias. Or confirmation bias, that is the tendency that we all have to favor information that confirms our own preconceived notions, which can be very, very difficult to unlearn once we have affirmed them. Cognitive bias or confirmation bias is also, by the way, called my side bias. And Jonah needed to do some unlearning in his time. Now, last week, we talked about Jonah's resistance, you remember, to God's call. That's common, and I, I get it. I, I mentioned last week that I resisted my own call for three years after I received it. I ran from God. Not because I, I, I thought I couldn't trust God. I couldn't trust myself. And I thought sometimes that God had called the wrong person but for jonah when you think about it the notion of a call involving him preaching in enemy territory was absolutely absurd i mean it was a death wish for him to go to assyria the chief enemy of israel who had destroyed israel to preach repentance of course he resisted and so what does he do he goes down to the port And he purchases a one-way ticket to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction to where God was calling him. In fact, it's 2,500 miles west instead of going east. And you remember what happens in chapter one. There's a great story. A storm blows up, the clouds rise, the rains come, the waves tripping the boat, and all of a sudden his trip his reluctance, his resistance is interrupted. It was Tim Keller who said, every act of disobedience has a storm attached to it. I've discovered that's true in my own life. So Jonah's defiance not only, get this, jeopardizes his own life, it jeopardizes and endangers the sailors who are pagan on the ship with him. And at Jonah's own request, he says, throw me overboard. And though these pagan soldiers who are behaving more like believers than Jonah is, they reluctantly toss him overboard. And incidentally, the storm suddenly settles down. But things go from bad to worse for Jonah. He's on a downward spiral. He's in a tailspin. And he's descending. Notice that word, descending. He goes down to Joppa, that's the port of Israel. He goes down to the ship. He goes down into the hold of the ship and falls asleep. And then he goes down into the deep blue sea. He is descending. He's going from bad to worse. But it's not until Jonah hits rock bottom in the belly of that big fish that he begins to rise, to ascend. I think it was J.K. Rowling who said, rock bottom can become a solid foundation on which you rebuild your life. A.A. teaches us that. A few years ago, J.K. Rowling, you recognize the picture? I'm sure you recognize the characters with her. Gave a commencement address in the Northeast in which she told about her downfall, her descent. At age 28, her young marriage ended, and suddenly she found herself a single mother, unemployed, almost homeless. But she said, In that season of descent, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only thing that mattered to me, and that was my writing. She went on to say, if I had succeeded at anything else, I would never have found the determination to succeed in this one area. In other words, she said, my success was built on my failures. And if you know J.K. Rowling, she did okay. Seven fantasy novels, she did okay with Harry Potter. Was Maya Angelou who said, You may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated. In fact, she said, It may be necessary to encounter the defeats so that you can know who you are, so that you can know what you can rise from, and how you can still come out of it. I've read the Bible through many times, and I'm doing it now chronologically. I'm reading the NIV Chronological Bible and i've discovered that god continually uses people who fail because there aren't any other kind around i mean you just think about it. look at the flops in the bible jacob was a swindler moses was a manslaughterer joseph was just a spoiled brat david was an adulterer. Elijah was depressed. Peter was a traitor. Paul was a persecutor. John Mark was a quitter. But God just never gave up on them. And in the words of some of my Jewish mystic friends, the descent is for the sake of ascent. Have you ever discovered what I've discovered that you really never know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you've got and then you know Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10:39 essentially sometimes you have to lose your life to find your life so for Jonah he hit rock bottom but it's not just hitting rock bottom that turns him around, it's what he does when he hits rock bottom. Watch this. What does he do? He prays. And Brother Mark, that prayer that you read, that is a wail of a prayer. That's Jonah's prayer in the belly. And it's actually a psalm. The Psalms, as you all know, that's located in the center of our hymn book, it's the prayer book, the praise book, the song book of the Hebrews. The psalms articulate two feelings, two emotions. Lament, sorrow, and thanksgiving. It's there that we find grace most of the time in the seaweed. It's not just on the peaks and mountaintops. It's more often in the low places, isn't it? It's in the depths. It's in the flood. It's in the storm where we find the grace of God. Or as Jonah says, it's in the pit. It's in Sheol. What is Sheol? It's a Hebrew word, place of shadows, place of the death. It's there that we more often than in our success come to the end of ourselves and discover the source of our salvation and our deliverance. Isaac Singer, who is a Polish-born Jewish writer, says it like this, whenever I'm in trouble, I pray. And since I'm always in trouble, I pray a lot. (laughs) Even he says, when you see me eating and drinking while I'm doing this, I pray. It is so often in our confinement that we pray. And so it was with Jonah. In our seasons of detention, that's when usually the soul goes deeper. One of my heroes in the faith who died not long ago is Eugene Peterson. He wrote your paraphrase of the New Testament and now of the whole Bible called The Message. He refers to this season in the belly of a whale as ascesis. It's an interesting word. That's the root word of the word ascetic or asceticism. It's a Greek term that literally means exercise, practice, training. Eschesis is to spirituality what training is to an athlete. It's a means to maturity. It's not easy. But it's a means to excellence. It's a means to resilience. Isn't it true That in our own experience, the soul tends to grow more in compression. It's essential for spiritual growth, eschesis. And so for Jonah, in his confinement, in his detention, he can't change his situation. In fact, he's responsible for it in many ways. So what does he do? He falls back on his training. He prays. And I want you to notice that the prayer he prays that Mark read, is not simply of his own making, it's actually a psalm. It's a prayer with history, that's what psalms are. And if you've ever been in one of these bellies, one of these uh, confinement places, when we lack words, what do we do? We go to the school of prayer, that is the psalms who say for us what we're unable to say for ourselves. By the way, if you didn't know, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalm 22. He's praying the scripture. And he does the exact same thing when he's in the wilderness being tempted after his baptism. What does he do? He recites Deuteronomy. He's praying the scripture. He's doing what he was trained to do. Man does not live on bread alone, right out of Deuteronomy. Don't put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God, serve him alone. He's praying the scriptures. He's falling back on his training. I mentioned Eugene Peterson a moment ago. He's written a book on Jonah. I have a copy of it called Under the Predictable Plant. We're going to talk about that particular section, Jonah 4, in two weeks. Dr. Peterson says this in that particular text Prayer is the most deeply human action in which we can engage. We have behavior, he says, in common with the animals. We have thinking in common with the angels, but prayer, and I'm talking about not just a laundry list of needs, I'm talking about attentiveness and responsive to, responsiveness to God. Prayer is distinctly human. It's innate, it's intuitive. Even atheists, when they get in confinement, are praying beyond themselves. The practice of prayer is central to the human experience. And what you see in Jonah is in his descent, he stops bellyaching and he starts beseeching God. He falls back on his training. That's why Sunday school, that's why prayer meeting, that's why small group, that's why worship. Listen to what he prays. I called out to the Lord in my distress And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and he heard my voice. I was reading last week about Coach Nick Saban. Um, Coach Saban is stepping down after 17 years at the University of Alabama as the head coach. I, I pray for the guy that's following him. I noted his record after 17 years. You know what his record is? 1 loss, 206 wins, 29 losses. He did pretty well. After Bear Bryant left in 1982, eight coaches in 25 years. My goodness. It's been said that the secret to Coach Saban's success was that he practiced hard. Now, some say that the only coach that practices harder than Coach Saban is Kirby Smart at the University of Georgia. And might I say, go Dogs! (laughs) You may not know this, but Kirby Smart and his wife are members at First Methodist Athens in Athens, Georgia, and when they joined that church, my friend uh, who took them in, Mrs. Smart leaned over and said, Sunday is the only day that's more important to me than Saturday. The only person who practices harder is Kirby Smart who is a Sabanite. Where did he learn it? From Coach Saban. How you practice is how you play. And if that's true in sports, it's doubly true when it comes to discipleship. Spiritual practice is is essential to following Jesus. That's why scripture, that's why confession, that's why meditation, that's why fasting, that's, that's why prayer, that's why worship, that's why retreat, that's, that's why tithing, almsgiving, journaling, sabbatical, small group. If you want to live a life that's faithful, you've got to practice. Because discipleship never, ever happens by accident. It always happens by intention. And how we practice is how we live. Eschesis. I hate to bring up a sore subject, but I will. That's what kept me sane when we were in the belly of COVID. That was the most difficult time that I can remember in many of our lives. But it was through study and prayer and meditation and spiritual reading, eschesis. And in some ways, I think we came out stronger than we were before COVID. And that's how God works, isn't it? Says Paul in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope And hope never disappoints us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In such times, we need to unlearn and relearn the source of our salvation and deliverance If you look at Jonah's case, the big fish that looked like to him sudden death actually became his ticket to life. After three days and three nights of confinement, detention, and prayer, what happened? The fish threw him up. One translation says vomited onto dry land. I I assume back to Joppa, back to Israel, where suddenly this prophet of God who's been resisting God gets a do-over God gives him a mulligan, (laughs) a second chance. And I love verse 9, chapter 2. Jonah says, What I have vowed to you, O God, I will perform. What you you have commanded me to do, I'll do. Well, yeah, that would have done it for me, wouldn't it, of you? In the belly of a whale, he changes his mind. He repents. He reverses. His resistance then turns into obedience, and he goes to Nineveh because his reluctance now has been overruled by grace. I'm going to talk about that next week. That's my life story. My reluctance to God has been overruled by mercy and grace. Let me share one other thought about this text. In the New Testament, some of you know that Jonah becomes a prototype, a precursor of Jesus. Not because of his resistance, but because of his confinement. Jesus knew Jonah's story. In fact, though they were centuries apart, they grew up within three miles of each other. Jesus knew his story. In fact, he lived it, didn't he, in certain ways. In Matthew 12, You may remember the religious professionals, scribes and Pharisees, come to Jesus demanding a sign. They won't believe unless Jesus pulls a rabbit out of a hat, unless Jesus does something miraculous or or spectacular, and you remember Jesus refuses, and he comes down pretty hard on the religious professionals. This is what he says. This is verse 40, chapter 12, Matthew. Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is Jesus talking. For just as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. What's he talking about? Jesus is talking about His own death and resurrection. His own descent. Like Jonah of old, Jesus is going to descend into the depths. Into Sheol, into the place of the dead. In in the place of gloom and deep darkness. Where the gates are forever closed. But on the third day, God's going to lift him up. In other words, his dissension is going to lead to ascension. The deliverer who hears the prayers of his beloved is going to lift him up. Any of y'all seen this, these silly progressive commercials that come on where there's a life coach that's trying to teach these people how not to be like their parents? I love these commercials, and one of my favorites reminds me of my father, who I want to be like in many ways, but in other ways, not so much. My my father, if you've seen the commercial on the elevator, my father was the guy who would get on the elevator and have conversation with everybody on the elevator. And everybody knows you're not supposed to look anybody in the eye on an elevator and talk about anything, but my dad always did. And as a teenager, I have to tell you, I was terribly embarrassed, and most of the time would look down at the floor on the elevator while he was carrying on with the people on the elevator. And my father, when we would get to the first floor and go home, he would always say the same thing to the people on the elevator. He would say, friends, make sure your last trip is up. Make sure your last trip is up. I'm not embarrassed anymore because that was his way of giving his witness. I don't know, maybe you've had cabin fever this week and I have too. We're relearning how to behave with each other this morning. Does anybody need a lift this morning? Somebody's in the pit. Somebody today is thinking, you're spiraling, you're in a tailspin, and and you've gotten a a bad diagnosis, or you've had a death in the family, we've had a death in the church, several, you're in a troubled marriage, you've got a wayward child, you've got an addiction that you won't admit, you're in between jobs, you're facing some financial problems, and you've been resisting God, and you almost feel like you're underwater, (laughs) descending, and you can't fix it. You've tried to fix it, but it's beyond you. It's bigger than you. Well, I want to tell you this morning, it may be bigger than you, but it's not bigger than God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Deliverance belongs to God. God. James 4.10 says it like this. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he's gonna lift you up. James Rowe wrote a song 100 years ago, 1912. He was the son of a miner who worked with publishers in Texas and in Tennessee. He wrote a song in 1912. I changed the last hymn. We're gonna sing this song. It goes like this. I was sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore very deeply stained within sinking to rise no more but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me now safe am I love lifted me love lifted me when nothing else could help love lifted me that's the gospel according to to Jonah, and that's the gospel of Jesus. In fact, I think it's the job description of a disciple to lift somebody else up, to descend so that someone else may ascend in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.